Recovery Elevator, episode 38. I didn't have to be sober for the rest of my life today. I just had to get through this hour. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, one month, and three weeks. On today's podcast, episode 38. Side note, 38 means I put out a podcast once a week. This is the 38th week that I've had a podcast come out. Time is flying by. Sobriety time is kind of piling up, which is awesome. But there was a time. Well, actually, lots of times. I'm going to go with dozens of times. Maybe 50, you know, let's go with hundreds of times where the thought of having another year, one year, one month, three weeks of sobriety, it just simply seemed unattainable. Actually, having one week of sobriety seemed like a milestone that I would never achieve. So for me to say one year, one month, three weeks, Hell, I could do a 30-minute podcast for me just repeating that because that is music to my ears. If you're not there yet, you got to join me. And if you've got more sobriety time than I do, you know how it feels because it's a wonderful club. So on today's podcast, episode 38, I've got Jessica. She's 23 years old. She's from Colorado, and she's been sober since May 31st, 2015. Another bonus Reason 681 of why I'm continuing to do the Recovery Elevator podcast. 681, I'm sober. 682, I get to meet cool people around the country. I met Jessica in the Recovery Elevator private accountability group. From her posts, I could obviously see that she was a Denver Broncos football fan. Me, being from Colorado, I I said, hey, I'm driving through. We met up in Denver, met at a Starbucks coffee. It was a great time. So she's on the podcast, and she's got a lot of great things to share with you guys. The topic of today's podcast is quotes in recovery. And yeah, there are a lot of quotes in recovery and a lot of quotes come from 12-step recovery programs such as AA. And a lot of these are, are, are like one step at a time, one day at a time, progress, not perfection. Although great quotes, I stumbled upon a website called recoveryreflections.com. Great website. And there it's just got a ton of quotes listed, kind of one-liners and then one initial. And instead of skipping through the quotes, which I had initially done and finding quotes where I can only read the similarities and not the differences, I was like, wait a second, Paul, let's practice what we preach. So I went through 18 quotes that were all in a line and I'm going to read the quote and I'm just going to do a quick snippet afterward. Quote number one, resistance. Resistance doesn't come from doubting the words. It comes from doubting the person using them. That's from S. So I'm going to go ahead and externalize my addiction, and I'm going to introduce you guys to a guy named Gary. Gary is my addiction. He's inside my brain, and when Gary speaks, I listen. After he's done, I go, hmm, what Gary just had to say was quite eloquent. It made a lot of sense, and I think I'm going to do it. But a lot of times that Gary has to tell me involves drinking. It involves stuff like, yeah, we got this. We've been sober. We're not an alcoholic. Let's go ahead and drink again. It's going to be different this time. Well, Gary... I'm not doubting the words. I'm starting to doubt you. Gary, you're full of shit. Quote number two, validate. Validate the newcomer by letting their pain be the biggest in the room. If you've ever been to a 12-step meeting and there's a newcomer in the room, you better listen up when they talk because this isn't incredibly short memory because they're going to tell you exactly what it's like to be out drinking and it's not any different than it was. 
Next quote, missed lesson. Bad luck is just a missed lesson. And that's by G. Basically, this is saying that a failure is only a failure if you don't learn from what went wrong. Or you could take this as drafting Andrew Luck in the first round is also a missed lesson. But really, if you do relapse, don't beat yourself up, but it's not a bad idea to go back and think about what went wrong. Because if you simply just relapse and don't learn from what happened, or maybe what decisions you did to take you down that road, then you might have a lot of bad luck or missed lessons. Next quote, we'll never hear. The loudest voice in recovery will be the struggling voice. You will never hear about a perfect recovery. And that's just from Jay. Well, there's no such thing as perfect, and let alone a perfect recovery. Maybe a perfect recovery could be quitting drinking and never relapsing. But the loudest voice in my recovery when I first quit drinking was Gary. Damn it, Gary. But luckily, my near-perfect recovery, and I'm going to call it near-perfect because I'm sober. And to me, I would say I would say recovery where you're not drinking is perfect, but nothing is perfect. But as I have been able to silence, no, I can't say that. But if I have been able to hush Gary down and keep that man, my externalized addiction in check, that to me is a pretty damn near perfect recovery. I'm not saying I'm perfect. In fact, I am so far from it, but you get the point. Next quote is own issues. Dealing with an addict or an alcoholic is going to force you to deal with your own issues. The average person has 3.4 blind spots. Myself, I'm not an average person, so I'm going to go ahead and be safe and say I've got over 40 to 50 blind spots. But the difference from me and a lot of other people with blind spots is I want to know about all of them. So dealing with another alcoholic who displays a lot of the same character defects, shall we say, might be a good way for you to notice your own blind spots. Next recovery quote, resilience. Failure can teach resilience. This is just by a man named A. Look, we are all warriors in recovery. We have faced adversity that the majority of the population will fortunately never have to face in their entire lives. The lows and the depths of pain that we understand, if we get back up after being knocked down hundreds of times, if we get back up 101 times, we will be much stronger people. And that is a fact. Next recovery quote, doing talks. There's a tendency for people to think they're doing the right thing because they're saying the right thing. This is not true. Doing talks the truth more than saying. By a dude or female named K. I'm going to follow this quote up with another quote. Actions speak a thousand words. Next quote, already taught. My kid looks at me and he is already taught. That's going to piggyback off the previous quote. Actions say more than a thousand words. You know what? It might be a picture says more than a thousand words, but I'm going to go ahead and throw action in there as well because it sounds pretty good and it makes a lot of sense. Next quote, excuses. Addictions are excuses to not ask for help. This whole recovery thing, being an alcoholic deal, one of the silver linings is I've gotten pretty good at asking for help. For one, to get sober, that required asking copious amounts of help. But I've taken those practices and principles, copy and pasted it. I've put it into my entrepreneurial lifestyle. I've asked for help. And guess what? The end results, these little businesses that I'm doing, they're doing a lot better. And guess what I'm not afraid to do? It's ask for help. If I'm on the side of the road and I'm changing a flat tire and the social stigma is, look, I'm a guy, I need to figure this out, I can change a flat tire. But if I don't want to do it, I'm going to ask for help. Asking for help is humbling, it's courageous, but it's also sometimes the no-brainer move to do. Next up is your pocket. There is time to lend a hand and to keep it in your pocket. The smart ones know how to use their pocket. By Alanis M. 
I'm just kidding. It's not Alanis Morissette. It's just named P. While for the majority of the time I try to keep one hand in my pocket while the other hand is given a high five, I'm not really too sure what this quote means. I guess this means like to not enable somebody. The smart ones know how to use their pockets. That's a hard thing to digest in recovery. I guess that means somebody's really got to go out there and get their bottom. Or almost you got to say, look, I don't think you're done drinking yet. You might need to go out there and reach another bottom. That's a tough one. Next up, forgiveness. Forgiveness understands the last moment is no longer yours. If you could see my face right now, it is covered in perplexion. I think forgiveness is to relinquish something, whether it be a feeling or an upper hand. But although life is a work of art, the moment cannot last. And that right there is a quote from my favorite Brad Pitt movie, The River Runs Through It, which was filmed, I don't know, about 45 miles away from where I'm recording this podcast right now in Galton County in good old Bozeman, Montana. Next up is harness faults. Learn to harness your most devastating faults in a way that lifts up humanity. Now, I stared at this one. My pen was tapping the paper for at least a couple minutes. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to read this one on the podcast. And then boom, it hit me. We've all got faults. Of course, I have more than the average person, as I mentioned earlier. This whole alcohol thing, I'm using it as my rocket fuel to make myself a better person. And hopefully, I can help a couple people along the way. And if that in some way lifts up humanity, I'll take both hands out of my pocket and give two high fives. Next up, a grudge. A grudge is a good place to put hurt. It gives it a direction. Hmm. And that one is by M. Yo, M, if you're listening right now, just go ahead and email me at inforecoveryelevator.com and just tell me what the hell that one means. Next up, goals. The only thing more motivating than achieving a goal is not achieving it. it sounds like this is somewhat similar to the old sick and tired of being sick and tired. You've got these goals, you got these dreams, but a certain time frame will pass and you still got these goals and you still got these dreams. But if you're not going to do anything to achieve them, those pain points just get larger and larger as the time passes by. Next up, behavioral choices. Don't confuse a mental condition with behavioral choices you use to fill a void. So I just went back to recovery reflections to see if there was like an asterisk on this that didn't quite make the copy and pasting process. Maybe like an index, a glossary. Don't confuse a mental condition. Maybe my own mental condition is blocking me from able to figuring out what this behavioral choices quote means by a dude with the name L. I've got plenty of voids in my life, so I'm sure I've confused my mental condition for filling a void or two or seven. Who knows? Next quote. This is standards. An addict or an alcoholic will violate their standards quicker than they can lower them. Damn it, Gary, the addiction. You did it again. We didn't even both grab a side of the bar and lower it. You just went ahead and changed the standards. Damn it, Gary. Damn it, Gary. Last quote of the podcast, motivation. Motivation comes from deficits and not strengths. This one comes from Sarge. If you want to get better in general, you got to be open up to your blind spots. And one of my several blind spots was me not being able to stop drinking after I started. So here I am working on my blind spot. If you've got some quotes of your own that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear them. Email them to info at recoveryelevator.com and put quotes in the subject line. Now let's hear from our interviewee, Jessica. Jessica, how are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Jessica, are you ready? 
as ready as I'll ever be. Let's do this. Number one, let's get right into this, Jessica. How long have you been sober? Um, as of today, I have been sober for 141 days, which is about a month or four months and two weeks ish. 141 days. Who, who's really counting? I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Congratulations on that. And you. you know, next up, Jessica, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from. How old are you? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? What do you like to do for fun? Um, so a little bit about me. I am actually from Colorado. Um, I'm 23 years old. I just got my first big kid job in the last year. So pretending to know what I'm doing in the business world. But uh, yeah, my career is just kind of starting now. And for fun, I really like snowboarding, enjoying the mountains, just as of recently, getting outdoors and being pretty active. Nice. In Recovery Elevator, one cool thing about this whole project slash movement slash Facebook slash social media is Jessica I actually met in person while on a road trip to Colorado to see my family. And in the Recovery Elevator private accountability group, I saw that she kept posting things about the Denver Broncos. I'm like, yeah, another Broncos fan. And we got to chatting and we met in person at a Starbucks. And Jessica, do you remember at the end of that conversation, you were like, wow, you know, we like, we met online and and I didn't at all feel like threatened or it was going to be dangerous. And you mentioned that at the end. I was like, oh, I guess you're right. We did meet on the internet. Yeah. It's surprising how something so specific but so important in two people's lives can really bring a connection that you don't have to know somebody your whole life you have that one thing in common so yeah it was really nice to meet you and put a face to a voice and not that uh our connection over the internet isn't completely significant but it brought a new level to it and it really really ingrained re for me and how much i appreciate that private accountability group it brought it to a new life yeah, you know, unfortunately, you know, it is, not to say unfortunately, but I'm an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, it is what it is, that's fine, but a good thing about this thing is it's a communal disease, and what I mean by that is, Jessica, I never really knew much about you before I met you, but at the same time, within, after one minute of meeting you, I felt very comfortable with you, because we've both gone through a lot of stuff together. Did you feel the same way, like, when you meet with other alcoholics, like, you've got one large thread in in common. You're both alcoholics. Absolutely. I think there's a unseen hardwiring in all of us that is very similar and very unique in to the rest of society and to normal people, quote unquote. So absolutely, there's that unspoken connection that you can't really describe, but it's very, very comfortable working and speaking with another alcoholic whenever I get the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Now let's get into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator, Jessica. So you've been sober for 141 days, almost uh, maybe four months and some change, or maybe right around that mark. When did you decide to get off your elevator and stop drinking? So my sobriety date is May 31st of 2015, um, and that was actually the day before my last drink was the day I decided to get off the elevator very importantly because of an event that happened. Um, Very long story short, I chose to overindulge as we do. Went swimming with a friend. The last thing I remember uh, was being in that swimming pool and woke up with my family, friends, boyfriends surrounding me in an emergency room in a (laughs) psych ward basically as they thought I was trying to kill myself. So at the time I had no intentions of doing so. I think my 
record had showed otherwise, I very much was unhappy with my life, and my drinking definitely reflected that. But I disrespected a lot of people that day that I really cared about, um, and my drinking was just very apparent as I had to sober up alone when I had all the people who cared about me leave as I was being disrespectful. So it was very apparent that whole next day going through withdrawals, getting all of the alcohol in my system in a daze and confusion that something had to give, something had to change and alcohol was either going to take me or I was going to take it. So I decided to get some help with it. You talk to me about that when you decided to get some help. When did you reach the conclusion that you're an alcoholic? For example, when I was 23, I was an alcoholic, but you are a heck of a lot further around the curve than I am because I was like, look, I'm 23. There's no way I'm an alcoholic. It, It took me about eight years later to finally admit it. But yeah, when you reached out for help, what was that like? Um, it was very interesting because in my life, my drinking career was very short and condensed. I started drinking about 19 and stopped at about 23. And in that whole time up until my last drink, I never even contemplated the idea that I was an alcoholic. But the funny thing about getting sober is you start to see things in a different light. And I actually didn't come to the conclusion that I was an alcoholic until probably a month and a half into both AA programs and an outpatient program where I learned the the science and education as well as the experience pieces of what alcoholism really looks like versus what my perception of it was. Sure. Talk to me about your drinking habits. You know, being age 23, did you drink every night? What kind of drinks did you drink? And did you ever try to like moderate it? (laughs) Absolutely. My drinking was very sporadic, which was really easy to try to justify later down the road that it wasn't problematic. I would drink probably four to five nights a week. Uh, When I did so, it was as much as I could get, which at the time was basically unlimited. The issue there was that I would try to control it because of individuals in my life. Either they would enable and do it alongside with me or they would tell me it was a problem. So depending on who I was spending my time with, which increased more and more with other alcoholics, I was able to control and try to say, okay, only weekends, okay, every other day. And I think it was shared on this uh, podcast before, but something I absolutely tried to do to control my drinking was I would say, okay, I get four nights a week, and I would use those four up immediately in the first four days of the week. And so my my new week would start a couple days later, and I just tried manipulating literal time, and it made perfect sense in my mind. It was completely rational, and it was completely justified because I wasn't an alcoholic in my mind. Jessica, I think you're quoting me on that one because I had a rule where I could only drink four nights a week. But then there was one week where I like copied and pasted from like the upcoming week. So I drank eight nights in a row. I'd be like, well, so eight nights in a row, that just means I can't drink for two weeks. But you can guess what happened like two days after into those eight nights in a row I was drinking. On the flip side of that, another big way I controlled was I told myself I was not going to drink for a month. And I was successful and I just barely didn't drink for 28 days because my mind concluded that February was a month and that is not that is not normal thinking but it made sense. I was like, "Yep, 28 days, that's a month." But I did it, see? That is funny. That's like textbook alcoholic behavior. It's like, "I'm going to go <laughs> 1 month without drinking." Flip to the calendar. "Oh, this day only has 28 months. That's the one I got to do." Not a September, not a July, definitely February. I love it. 
Now, Jessica, <laughs> let's talk about relationships, whether it be with family and friends. You had mentioned earlier that you had damaged a lot of relationships that you had. So how did drinking affect relationships? Um, well, while I was drinking, um, it affected a lot of them. Like I had kind of said, if if I was drinking, the people that drank too, it seemed to improve those relationships. We had something to bond over and it connected us in a way. When I was drinking and it was affecting those who were not alcoholic or not drinking like me, um, it really, really eroded some relationships fast. Specifically, my mom living at home with her and my father, uh, my dad kind of distanced himself, not with ill intent, but I'm just a mama's girl. And my mom very subtly would say, you know, you kind of drink a lot. I know you're in college, but you kind of drink a lot. And it really, I think, fueled the fire. I was a 4.0 student throughout college, and I graduated, and I gave myself all these justifications as to how I was outsmarting something that it couldn't be a problem I had. And my mom very quickly uh, saw the effect that alcohol was having on me, and it, it definitely was the biggest injured relationship in my life. A boyfriend as well, but really the one with my mom was the most impacted. Talk to me more about, you said it fueled the fire. When your mom first said, hey, Jessica, I think you might be drinking a lot. When you say it fueled the fire, was it like, oh, I'll show you drinking a lot? Or how did you react? I think I think at first it was, I kind of went through the different emotions with it. I initially thought, okay, maybe she's right. And over time, I'd, I'd start looking at myself on paper and I'd, I started getting angry. And then I was like, it went from being a sweet, compassionate comment to a attack. And I learned a lot after my drinking got very bad. Anyone who would try to come between me and my drinking was a threat and an attack. And it was just complete twist of my thinking. It was completely inaccurate, but it it made rational sense to go all out in my drinking at that point. And and talk to me about your relationship with your mom and your parents and your friends with 141 days of sobriety. Is it already amended? Was there too much damage? Where's it at right now? It is so much further than I thought it'd be. Some hard losses of people I thought were friends had to happen. Um, Very, very seemingly close friends I have lost, but that's due to the fact that our foundation wasn't built on a friendship. It was built on drinking together. Um, So those relationships have gratefully fleeted my life, but the ones with my mom, my parents, my immediate family, anybody close enough to really understand what's going on in my life, it's taken a 180. They don't ask about, oh, how are you doing this week without drinking? It's it's very much apparent in my life, but it's out of their minds. And I want to keep it that way. Yeah. And you're 23. And with that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the band Ace of Bass? No. Okay. That's disappointing. <laughs> but <they're, laughs> that tells me you're 23. That's a good thing. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But getting sober at age 23, what is that like? And just being young, right? So all your friends around you, they're probably drinking. And probably a lot of those friends will get sober, maybe in their 30s or 40s. But you're 23. That's got to be tough getting sober at age 23, right? Definitely bittersweet. Um, I have my moments where I will hear other people speak and uh, you hear about, you know, I was drinking for 20 years and I all these experiences. And there's a sense of jealousy that comes to that. And I, I know that's my addiction speaking. It's It's hard to not think for a moment, well, I didn't get to have all those, like, I didn't get to have all that fun because drinking was fun. But then 
the reverse side of it is you'll hear from time to time someone come up to you and they go, wow, like you're young. Like I'm young for being being in sobriety and, and you're young. But it's been complemented in ways that I don't have to waste so much of my time getting to where I'm at right now. It's a well, well worth sacrifice to be in here now because I get to enjoy that much more time being sober, though it is hard some days. Bingo. And that is the value bomb right there. You are getting sober at age 23 and you're a lucky one for getting sober at that age. The majority of people, A, they don't get sober, but B, they get sober in their 60s, their 50s, their 40s, and their 30s. You're early 20s and you are in the professional setting. What's it like being in the real world job setting and sober? It's very interesting working in an office and... (laughs) Before I was in sobriety, as I did before May 31st, I had no idea that alcohol was even seemingly problematic. I just thought I was being young. So now taking that shift into an office is interesting because I'm still surrounded by all sorts of people. And that includes people who either know addiction and are unaware of my situation, or they have no idea of their own situations. And it, being in a professional world, still you still hear people make jokes about I don't even understand how it comes up, but in random conversation, and maybe it's because my ears are prone to hearing it and they perk up when I hear about addiction or alcohol or any sort of joke, but it's really difficult to separate even now in a big kid world, addiction and alcoholism and partying, quote unquote, and not. I I kind of thought it would be easier to separate work from play, but it, it really, it goes with everywhere. Yeah, I remember fantasizing with when I quit drinking, thinking I was to be the large CEO of a corporation and then I would have to drink with people from other cultures over sushi if I was going to meet with Japanese business leaders or Chinese business leaders, that the drinking was a big part of it. But for the majority of us in the professional setting, exorbitant amount of alcohol, that's 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 a ticking time bomb. And you're going to see that, I imagine. Absolutely. It's many work parties, work events, leaving early because those those times happened really early in my sobriety became the only option. Telling people as soon as we stopped getting paid and people were allowed to order drinks that I I had other obligations, which I didn't. I just didn't want to put myself in a position where I had to choose something I didn't want to. Oh, absolutely. Let's, Jessica, let's back it up a little bit to age 19. Was that when you took your first drink? Um, It isn't, actually. Um, I think I had played with alcohol a time or two probably when I was 16 or 17, but all growing up, I was very type A. I was very, very much the scaredy cat, the paranoid person you didn't want at your party because I was worried about the noise and I was worried about getting in trouble. And I really did have a lot of a lot of goal-oriented thoughts in my forefront, especially going through high school and um, leading at the beginning of college. So did you have any time of normal drinking, shall I say, or were you an alcoholic from the first drink or or when you first started drinking continuously at age 19? That's a really good question. It's actually something I still struggle with now. Um, I know it's not at all associated with a 12-step program, but I'm still very much ingraining what my alcoholism looks like to myself. So I think there are days I like to tell myself I was a normal drinker, but then again, I know how sneaky my addiction is. So I I know I was able to control myself. The obsession didn't overcome me in the first few drinks. But when I when I started to drink even slightly heavy, it took over. Now, Jessica, talk to us about this 141 golden days of sobriety and how you did it. 
doing it was only one day at a time. The cliches are cliches for a reason because I didn't have to be sober for the rest of my life today. I just had to get through this hour and no one can overcome a whole week, a whole 20 years or a whole hour of sobriety if they don't, if they don't think they can. So whether I could or whether I couldn't, either way, I was right. And reminding myself every waking moment of every day that this was mine and this was my attempt to control my life. Again, those cliches and the breakdowns and uh, the, the cliches are the best. <laughs> Yeah, and did you did you go to a twelve step meeting? Did you go to AA, or or what do you do to to maintain this one hundred forty one days of sobriety? Right now, I'm sitting in the parking lot of my wonderful AA group. I am very much involved in AA. Um, I have a sponsor who I don't know where my sobriety would be without her. Just someone someone who's been there, who has what you want, and her and I work together really diligently. Once a week, we go through and break down what my what my alcoholism looks like to me, and it's very personal to me. Um, in addition to that, I also, at the first two months of my sobriety, I went to an outpatient program where twice a week I would go for an hour and a half um, and get the education behind what addiction is, what it looks like, and how it isn't a coincidence that we all seem to think this way. Jessica, can you explain more about the outpatient treatment process? Because for me, rehab versus outpatient, I was pretty blind to what the differences were. What What is outpatient treatment? So outpatient, there's outpatient and then there's also inpatient. So if you're inpatient, you're usually at the facility where you live um, and you are there for a long period of time. What I went through was outpatient and outpatient was I still kept my job and I was able to do whatever I'd like, but I was asked to check in twice a week to my healthcare provider and I would go and it was, like I said, kind of a classroom base with other individuals of all sorts of addiction. And that really included some conversation where we would talk about our experiences other days, it was very much the breakdown of the science of the mind and addiction and how it, how it actually worked. And yeah, it was really free as you go, but it, it kept me accountable to keep going because people didn't always come the next week and you would hope and wonder where they were. And that piece of accountability was really key to me continuing to go every week as I did have the freedom to leave. Let's see how much you retained or or what you retained from that experience. I'm actually curious. Break it down a little bit with the addiction and the mind from a scientific point of view. Do you remember anything about that, what they talked about? I do. So it's really hard without a marker board. So picture as best as I can describe. Ultimately, there are two brains in our and on that big brain, you're thinking rationally, you think emotionally. Um, it's where you make all of your key decisions and anything that includes, you know, like I said, emotions or rationality. Um, and then on the inside, there's a smaller brain. And what this brain does is it's the addiction. It's what it's an immediate, it's instant gratification. Ultimately, it's the, it's the brain that gets you home drunk. It's the brain that literally doesn't know a better answer than why did you do that last night? Then I don't know. It's a survival brain. So it will drink without thought. It will indulge in things like sex and eating. And it's those instant gratification brains that really, there's no, there's nothing more quick and instantly um, fulfilling than that brain. And when you have addiction, 
it takes over your big brain. That's why they they tell us to explain to family. When we say we don't know why we drank, we don't know. It's not a lying. It's not a it's not a moral issue. It's that we don't know because that brain took over. Hmm. Interesting. I love it. Jessica, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one. What was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking it had to be the somehow slight memory I had in my blackout of my last drink in the hospital. I remember seeing my parents' faces as they realized what was happening and the monster I was being, and I remember them leaving the hospital, literally shaking their heads. And Jessica, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Right now, my plan is to maintain, um, to understand my hardwiring and how I am different than others. Breaking down all the fluff and the lies that I still whisper sometimes in my addiction, um, and really just getting to the core, clear picture of what I am and who I am in my drinking and in my sobriety. Next question. What is your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book. This could be AA. This could be a mobile app. Um, I'd say my favorite resource is sponsorship and AA, working with others who have been through what I'm going through and who want me to get to a better place and a better life. And next question. In regards to sobriety, Jessica, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, I think I touched on it earlier, but you don't have to be sober for the rest of your life today. You you just have to deal with today, and that's a way smaller burden to carry than forever. And next up, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in early recovery or they're thinking about quitting drinking? I would have to say be kind to yourself, but don't take it too easy. It's something that requires a sense of self-control that isn't that isn't normal and it also requires a sense of relief that you're not used to giving yourself we beat ourselves up we're really good at beating ourselves up in addiction that 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 part you just you know you feel terrible enough and then we brutalize and, and just kick our own butts so i'm glad you said that too that's a great piece of advice we can't be too hard on ourselves and last up Jessica, give us your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you have a breakdown for every day associated with drinking, a.k.a. Sloppy Sunday, Margarita Monday, Trash Tuesday, Wasted Wednesday, Thirsty Thursday, Effed Up Friday, and Shit Face Saturday. Oh, I love it. Jessica, I got to get that on the uh, the podcast episode blog post. That is fantastic. Great stuff. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. You might be an alcoholic if, and this one comes from Shelly, you might be an alcoholic if you keep your vodka in the freezer behind the peas and the hot pockets because it tastes better chilled. These next four come from Claire. You might be an alcoholic if you pour a little Diet 7-Up out of a 20-ounce bottle and fill it up with vodka because you think no one will know. You might be an alcoholic if you call in sick to work, but then you show up for work. Your boss asks you what you're doing at work because you just called in sick, and you realize you were in a blackout when you called in to work sick. You might be an alcoholic if you keep a notepad by the phone so you can take notes when you're drunk dialing people, but then you can't read your handwriting the next day. You might be an alcoholic. Love it. Another one. This one's from Claire as well. 
You might be an alcoholic if you are now sober, but want to wear a sign on your shirt that says you are enjoying a piece of gum to merely blow bubbles, not to cover up the vodka smell. You may be in recovery. This next one comes from Robert. You might be an alcoholic if you rip the pouch out of a box of wine and you just start milking that thing. You might be an alcoholic. Send us your you might be an alcoholic ifs to info at recoveryelevator.com. We'd love to hear them. Before we conclude today's podcast, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now, all those recovery quotes, you can see them at RecoveryElevator.com, podcast episode 38. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. 